you are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Gracious Father in heaven, I thank you again for your love. I pray as we plunge into this today that you will be our teacher, the Holy Spirit will be here, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I, I don't know, I've got background noise here. I'm looking at the PA people. I guess they got it figured out and that was good. It's hard to listen to two people at the same time. You know, one thing that just drives me nuts is if you're trying to listen to some talk show and they talk over each other and they're trying to outshout each other, it drives me nuts. Have a little civility and, and take wait your turn. But anyway, it's the world that we live in uh, nowadays. So, all right, back to Galatians, the uh, last chapter. We're getting the third chapter today, and we're getting the heart of some really big issues. But the, we ended yesterday, we're ending yesterday with Galatians 2.20, that marvelous one that says, For I have been crucified with Christ. Remember that I talked about the two systems, how one system motivates you to earn a reward. Do you remember that yesterday? And that's the system that's prevalent because it's very easy to motivate people to get a reward. One thing I didn't say about that reward was, and by the way, you can motivate people to get a reward. People all around the world are being motivated in order to earn salvation or to have salvation or to have justification. You find it all over the world in every pagan religion and in big chunks of, of Christianity today. Um, so they can be motivated that way for sure. But let's say they're motivated. Let's say they're like the Apostle Paul before he found Christ, that he was a Jew of the Jew, outwardly a Pharisee. He did everything possible, correct. And let's say that he earned the prize. But the prize they offer, the prize they can offer, is not worth having. It's a delusion. You don't get anything. So the only system that works is to be motivated by this marvelous Jesus whom we love. And when you love Him with all your heart, you will be motivated to be good. That's why the law can only be established by faith in Christ. It can never be established with this system that motivates people for a reward. That makes sense with me? So that's why this text is so important, for I'm crucified with Christ. Now, I know that we motivate people in the workplace, and we motivate kids when they're growing up, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. Johnny and Mary have to learn to work, and they have to learn the rewards of work. We understand that. And that's a good thing, a cause and effect. But that, that's not applicable to the desperate situation that we have. Because you can't get yourself out of the situation that we're in. There's no way. You cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps on this. You might in the workplace, you might earn a million dollars pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but you won't do that here. People think so. People, you know, they, and I say this with sweet kindness. Um, sometimes people that are successful in business, not all, sometimes people successful in business think that they can apply the same principles to the church or to salvation. It's just not true. It won't work because you can't get yourself out of this. For I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And that is the essence. I was talking to somebody this morning in the parking lot. I think you're here. And uh, she said to me, she said, you know, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, forgive me if I don't get it quite right, but, but she said to me, you know, I, I've, I've learned, I know now that Christ our righteousness is having Jesus in my heart. She gets it. I want to say amen. That's what Galatians is all about. That's why we call the book Experiencing Jesus Through Galatians. 
It's this living Christ that has to live in your heart and in my heart. Aren't you? It's amazing that the Holy Spirit can bring this. And people say, well, how can Jesus live in my heart? Well, I'll get into a little bit of that later, but listen, if you have the Holy Spirit, since they're one, they're three, but they're one, but if I get the Holy Spirit, who else do I get? I get the Father and the Son. I get the Son, I get the Holy Spirit. If I get the Father, I... Isn't that wonderful? So if the Holy Spirit comes in, he bring, even though Jesus physically is in the heavenly sanctuary, He actually comes into my heart by means of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit is so precious, and that's why we need to talk. And that's why if the church makes the Holy Spirit a matter of small concern, it's like denying a plant water. The church will flounder. Any local church will flounder. All right, uh, I want to go back to the last verse of uh, uh, the last verse is verse 21, and it says, "I do not set aside the grace of God." So I ask the question, why is he not willing to set aside the grace of God? For if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died in vain. Now you think about why he wrote that statement. I do not set aside the grace of God because if you set aside the grace of God, what is left? If Christ, if the Messiah died in vain, then we are all lost. There's no hope. So he says, I'm not setting aside the grace of God. I'm not going back to that old system of being motivated by reward. I'm not going back to that because I have the grace of Christ and uh, I'm not going to give that up. Now, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. There's something I don't know what there is about this that I like, but Paul can get away with this. I mean, you wouldn't normally say that to most people, but he can say this. Oh, foolish Galatians. He says it with fatherly love. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That word bewitched is a word that means to charm. And I think one of the best illustrations that I have of that, and let me change uh, spots here, um, and I didn't get even into the introduction. Well, maybe I'll get back to some of that uh, as we get into chapter 3. There's a lot here. Um, I, the way to, to understand this bewitching, and we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? It means that somebody charms you into doing something that is actually not in your best interest. Do you follow me? Have you ever had anybody... Don't raise your hand. Have you ever had somebody sell you something that was not in your best interest? Yeah, yeah. Because they just want... Now flash back to me with me to the Garden of Eden. Why was Eve charmed she was deceived adam was not deceived she was deceived why is she charmed out of life how is that done what did satan do to motivate her to do that okay i'm going to put that in a different you're absolutely right he says you can be like god in other words he took eve's thankfulness for all the freedom she had. Did she have a lot of freedom? Could you eat of every tree of the garden? There's lots of freedom there. He took her mind off of her freedom and switched it to an equal outcome. Have you ever heard of that before? That's Marxism. In other words, trade your freedom and we will give, give us your freedom and I'll give you equal outcome. So he's saying to, to Eve, trust me, put your faith in me. Didn't talk about the freedoms that she already had. And you'll become like God. And if you become like God, will you need God? Will you be in charge of your own ship? Will you have His wisdom? 
That's what she thought she was getting. But what did she get instead? By the way, how much freedom is in death? None. None. And so that's, that's what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Somebody's bewitching you here. They're trying to tell you, you had, you had freedom. You had freedom in Christ. You had liberty in Christ. You had joy in Christ. He was going to get into that. But now they're trying to tell you that you really didn't have that. And in really, in order to have that, you have to add to your faith in Christ circumcision. You have to add to your faith in Christ plus Christ plus something else. Do you see how that works? Same thing as the Garden of Eden. It's the same deal. It was just dressed up different. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has, who has bewitched you and talks about Christ being clearly um, in front of, uh, portrayed clearly for them? Let's look at, let's look at verse 2. And we ask the question here on verse 2 is, on what basis did they receive the Holy Spirit? This only I want to learn from you. Here's its question. Did you, Galatians, receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What's the answer to that? So was there a waiting period? Did, when they first came and presented the gospel to the Galatians, did they say to the Galatians, now Galatians, if you will do such and such rituals, then the Holy Spirit will be given to you. And you must believe in Jesus. Or there's a waiting period here, and if you wait so long and you're faithful so long, then you'll get the Holy Spirit. Or did they get the Holy Spirit because they put their faith in Christ? That's how they got the Holy Spirit. And the falling of the Holy Spirit on those early believers was pretty powerful. By the way, we need to return to that today. Amen is right. So, um, keeping up with my notes here. So, I, I, let me just share, share this thought. Well, let's read verse 3 first. Verse 3. Are you so foolish, uses that word again, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? Here's another way of putting this. You started your journey by faith in Christ alone. What makes you think you're going to finish your journey by faith in Christ plus having to add some other stuff? Follow what he's saying? So he says, no, you started your journey in faith alone and that's how you have to finish it. And that's what, that, that's what he means by that. Verse 4, uh, Have you suffered so many things in vain? Were they persecuted for their faith in Christ? And the answer to that is yes, if indeed it was in vain. Verse 5, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? So all these miracles that the Holy Spirit performed among the Galatians, was that a result of their working and being good enough to accept it? Being good is important, don't get me wrong. We'll get to that in a moment and before we get done with this. But it's getting the cart in the right place. Did, they, they have, did all this happen? because of their good behavior or their loyalty to the earthly sanctuary. No, it all happened. This miraculous power all happened because of their faith in Jesus, just like in the upper room. All right, um, let's, um, let's go on in verse 6. Just as Abraham... Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And I go with verse 7. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Uh, this is quite a, a, a very fascinating thing. 
Now, I want to say this with sweet kindness to our evangelical friends, our evangelical friends. Have you ever heard of dispensationalism? Dispensationalism, they have everything divided up in different dispensations, and there was one dispensation that you were saved by works. This totally contradicts that. There has never been a time in human history when anyone could be saved outside of their faith in the Messiah. Now, before the cross, they did not know the name of the Messiah, but they knew the Messiah was coming. Abraham was saved because of his faith in that promise. And everybody before the cross that's saved are saved because of that faith in that Messiah. After the Messiah comes, we know his name. And everybody that's saved is going to be saved because of their faith in that Messiah. So there's never been a time in human history that there was any way to be reconciled with God outside of your faith in that Messiah. Um, and, I, and I want to share a few other little things here while I'm at this. So I'm, I'm reading a little bit and paraphrasing at the same time. And I want to flash forward a little bit to when Jesus showed up and he's being confronted by the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verses 24 to 41. You can look at that if you'd like. So here's Jesus. They're having an argument about who he is. And he's saying, I've been sent from God. Despite all the evidence that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, the Pharisees refused to accept him. And as I mentioned earlier, I think in the first lecture that we had, or seminar we had, these guys knew the Scriptures. They were not idiots. They had the evidence. When Jesus reproved the Pharisees for their unbelief, they responded by insisting that Abraham was their father. Even as they said this, they were involved in a plot to murder Jesus. Jesus answered their attempt to use Abraham as a cover for the unbelief this way. This is Jesus now. He responds, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Powerful answer. Don't you love that answer? So they're saying, oh, we're Abraham's. While they're plotting to murder him, violate one of the Ten Commandments. And he looks at him and says, if you were the children of Abraham, you'd do the works of Abraham. Whoa! What Jesus does here is he puts cause and effect in the right place. He puts work, faith and works in their proper order, their cause and effects. In other words, if you had faith like Abraham had in the Messiah, you would do the works of Abraham. But because you don't have the faith in the Messiah as Abraham had, you don't do the works of Abraham. Did you get that okay? So see how Jesus beautifully puts everything in the right order. Nothing wrong with good works. That's, that's, God wants good works. We'll talk about that. But you've got to get the right thing in the right, in the right order. Uh, by the way, how many genetic children do you think Abraham has? A lot of them in the Middle East are all uh, connected to him one way or the other. How many of those genetic descendants had the faith of Abraham? Now, I'm going to make a bold statement, and some people would be unhappy with that. But the fact is that unless you have the faith of Abraham, you cannot be a child of Abraham. The only way to be a child of Abraham is not dependent on your genetic background or even your genetic link to Abraham. The only way to be an heir with Abraham is to have the faith of Abraham. So even his own genetic children are not, who do not have faith in him are not his children. That's why the gospel goes to all the world. That's why the Seventh-day Adventist Church embraces every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Because we're here to make children, believe it or not, of Abraham. And you become a child of Abraham 
if you put your faith in the Messiah that Abraham put his faith into. Um, and that would help straighten out a lot of things uh, right there. So, uh, and let me say this. this is, I think this is a truth. We become the children of whom or what we trust. Do I need to say that again? We become the children of whom or what we trust. Our behavior simply follows our trust. Faith is not dependent on ancestry or family. I mean, I was not born a Seventh-day Adventist. My parents became Adventists when I was uh, six years old. And, and I praise God, it added huge value to our life and it was a great blessing. But they cannot, they cannot make me. I, I'm really not their child unless I have the faith they had in Christ. That makes sense? I am their child, but I'm not their child unless I have that faith. So, um, so faith uh, is not dependent on ancestry or family. It's dependent on the choice of faith. I don't know if I've shared this with you. I, uh, I have a friend here who got me connected to a Christian Reformed church. There are a lot of wonderful people in the Christian Reformed church, so don't misunderstand me. But they, they uh, believe in Calvinistic predestination, and I grew up around that. If you've been around Baptist um, and the once saved, always saved, same kind of uh, thinking in a lot of ways. There you are. We were just talking about this the other day. At any rate, so through a chain of circumstances, I, I met, and they, were, they, they ascended that, uh, willing to do that. So I met with their ministers, a large church. And so we were just talking about, they knew who I was, and they knew what I would be talking about, and we, we'd be talking about. So we got talking about this whole issue of predestination, and uh, very cordial, by the way. Very, it was a very nice atmosphere. And we left all on good terms. And, and there's a time that you push it, and there's a time that you back off of it. At any rate, so we were talking about this, and I made the statement that faith is a choice. Did I tell you this the other day? No? Okay. Sometimes you meet yourself coming and going, you know. So I said, uh, I said, faith is a choice. And the younger pastor there, who I had learned had just been recently married, said, oh, no, no, faith is not a choice. So I looked at him and I said, so did you have faith in your wife when you married her? And wasn't that a choice? Did she have faith in you? And wasn't that a choice? Didn't she choose to have faith in you? No, no, no. He said that. No, I just left it alone. So sometimes you plant a seed and you go on. But faith is a choice. And you choose to believe. You're not forced to believe. You choose to believe. All right. So... Um, So people who put their faith in Christ are the true children of Abraham. Therefore, we can conclude with Jesus that since Abraham is the father of the faithful, listen to this, his genetics can't save anyone, but his faith can. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's go on. This chapter is loaded and... And uh, we probably won't get through all of it again today. It, this chapter three and four is gets into the heart of a lot of stuff here, and it's very good. All right, um, verse verse eight. I'm going to to uh, skip verse eight and nine because I really we've covered that. Verse ten. For as many as are of the works of the law, that means many who are trying to be saved by the system of the works of the law, 
are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. So those who are trying to be trying to earn their way are going the reward system. Why is it that they're still under the curse? And we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the curse? Anybody want to venture a guess? One word is death. There's a death penalty in the law of God. That's why there's a thou shalt not. And there's a reason for that death penalty. And a lot of people don't think about that. Our world today says, oh yes, there's a death penalty. God's up there ready to... It doesn't work that way. And, and let, me, let me explain. I, I did a little bit um, maybe earlier, but I, I need to underline this so we, we get a clear picture of this. God's Ten Commandments, we'll come back to this more. God's Ten Commandments are not arbitrary. In other words, God didn't sit up there and say, mm, I kind of like that fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. I think I'll put that one in there. They're not arbitrary. They're essential to life, according to Romans chapter 7. So life cannot exist without those Ten Commandments being honored. So, so God uh, has a reason for this curse. And you can, we're, we're seeing it, of course, everywhere. So if I violate those, I become a threat to the universe. I become a threat to the civilization of the universe. So God has a choice. He, has to do, he either has to let me continue and destroy the universe, or He has to let the law enforce the penalty. Do you understand what I'm saying? By the way, I just read a little article, and sometimes I wish I hadn't read it, where there's this guy, he's got eight counts or ten counts or some kind of a long list of violent crime, and they let him out, and guess what he does next? You guessed. I, I, so there, it's the same principle. Sinner, you say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm a nice guy. You may be. You may you be a nice person. But without Christ, you're a selfish person. And a selfish person will act on their selfish interest. And if they act on their selfish interest, they're going to violate the law of God and they're going to threaten life. Does that follow? Still with me? So it's not God setting up there, I'm the judge. Well, He is the judge. But no, he's, he's guarding the universe. Now, I've used this illustration many times. And if you've heard me use it before, just have mercy. My mother used to say to me, and I had the most wonderful mother. She was wonderful. I'm serious. And she, she said to me one time, I think she was giving me a hint. She says, you know, I listen to these preachers. And they, they use those Ill, same illustrations over and over again. And I said, well, Mom, maybe they just haven't figured out a better one. <laughs> and that's the case right now. I don't have a better one. I, but I wanted to understand our Heavenly Father and why this curse is there. Um, uh, my little brother and I, I don't remember our age, we're, I think we're both well under 10. And I had a wonderful grandmother on my mother's side, on my mother, father's side as well. And my grandmother, she was a sweetheart. And all of a sudden, I saw her in a form I had never seen her before. We were standing playing little cars out in the big sandy driveway on the farm, her farm. And she started running towards us, waving a hoe and yelling. I wasn't scared because I wasn't scared of grandma. I'd just never seen her like this before. And all of a sudden, she ran up beside us, and she started beating the ground. And it's probably one of my aunts. I have three older aunts, and I'm the oldest grandson, and they spoil me. And it's nice. My, 
my aunts still call me and check up on me, and I love them for it. They're, they're, they're sweethearts, my mother's sisters. My mother rests in Jesus now. But anyway, so does my grandmother. And evidently, one of my aunts had gone and told grandmother that there was a copperhead snake beside her two little grandboys. So now, let me question and answer. Why did she have so much anger toward chopping that snake into a thousand pieces of hyperbole? Exactly. The, her anger toward the snake was in proportion to her love for her grandboys. Does that make sense? That's exactly what you have with our Heavenly Father. When the snake of sin crawled into His universe, His anger is predictable. And here's the bigger problem that God has. I know there are theologians who say, God doesn't have a problem. Okay, okay, thank you. But He does. And the problem is that we're His children, but we're also snakes. Now, God is love. He loves His children. That will not change. He cannot, and He must not. It's not that He just cannot. He must not tolerate the snakes. You understand? So what's He going to do? Somehow, He has to get rid of the curse and then get the curse out of us and the snake out of us. That makes sense? Somehow he's got to get us out from underneath the penalty, which is a good, just penalty, and get the snake out of us. And that's why this next text uh, uh, is so, so important. Um, uh, actually, it's verse 13 I really want to get to, and I'm going to skip to that. Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, but how does he do it? The next verse, I mean, line says, having become the curse for us. Now, this, I, it's almost unimaginable to think that way, but I never understood until I, some years ago why God told Moses to take that snake and put it up on a pole and put it up for Israel to look at and live. It just seems so contradictory to me. I, I just, it just did. And it was. And it seems contradictory here. Christ becomes the curse in order to get rid of the curse from us. And at the same time to get the snake out of us and the poison out of us, the selfish poison. So the question is, is, is how does God do that? Now, what I'm going to launch into in a moment is just a little right now. It's going to be a little controversy. By the way, this controversy precedes the Adventist church by centuries, maybe millenniums. And it's all about the nature of Christ. Now, I have friends that I love in the Adventist church and out. And you will hear the argument go like this. By the way, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that by the way in a minute. The argument goes back like this. Christ came to save us and He took the unfallen Adam's nature... And so he had no sinful nature at all in his being. And they marshal Bible texts that are good ones and spirit of prophecy support that are good ones and it looks pretty good to me. And then there's another line of thinking that says, no, he was tempted and always like we are. He took the fallen nature that we have and He overcame just like we do and 
they have the Bible text, and they have the support of the spirit of prophecy, and it looks pretty good to me. When you're confronted with that kind of a thing, you have to start thinking. And you begin to ask yourself some questions. Since Jesus says Scripture cannot be broken, and it cannot. And by the way, there are things that I don't understand that I have a little black box that I put them in, and then Jesus, He shows them to me. But if I never get the answer, i got huge amounts of evidence that I don't have to have the answer. Somebody should have said amen. Yeah. You should have that little black box too. So I got to thinking about this. I said, there's something wrong. This looks right. That looks right. It looks contradictory, but they can't be contradictory because Scripture cannot be broken. So it must be a paradox. And there must be something here that we're not getting. Follow me? So with that in mind, I'm going to do a little reading so I can be a little precise, if you don't mind. Jesus was both like us and unlike us. So hang on to your seat here. It's going to, I think it's going to turn out fine. That may sound like a contradiction, but it's true. And how we need it to be true. His mother was human, and his father was God. Is there anybody else on the human race that can say that? Jesus often, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus often declared that he had come from heaven, sent by his father. We know he arrived as a baby, the son of Mary, but not the son of Joseph. He obviously received his mother's fallen nature, common to the human race. There is nothing in Scripture that would suggest otherwise. Now, I'm going to stop there and tell you that our Roman Catholic friends decided they didn't want to accept that, and they invented something in fairly recent time, so to speak, called the Immaculate Conception. Have you ever heard of that? Well, the Immaculate Conception was put together so they could have a perfect Mary, and then they could get a perfect Jesus out of a perfect Mary. You with me? So I told you this controversy is, is a lot bigger than that. So that was, that was a side trip, just to give you a perspective. So there's nothing in Scripture that suggests otherwise. But he also received something from his father. And I've dialogued with some theologians about this. And that was an unspoiled nature slash character. An unspoiled. Your nature spoiled, and so is mine. But from his father, he got an unspoiled nature slash character. While character is something that's developed over time by our choices, it does have a beginning. The Bible says even a child is known by its doings. As human beings, our tendencies to selfishness are stamped by our sinful ancestors in our very nature. You don't know who your ancestors really all are, do you? You go back to great-grandpa and great-grandma, but after then, you don't even know what's stamped on your character. I mean, tendencies, we've all got it. As human beings, our tendencies to selfishness are stamped by our sinful ancestors in our very nature. So even though Jesus was clothed with humanity, I use the word carefully, clothed with humanity from his mother with its temptations, he never spoiled the holy nature character that he received from his father. The divine-slash-human Jesus is the result of what we call the Incarnation. While we can see its results, its mechanism is a divine mystery. 
Our minds cannot grasp it. And this is a problem. I see people trying to explain this. I tell people it's like flying in a plane. You see all those beautiful fluffy clouds and you hope, I'd just like to get in and see what one of those is like. And the plane flies into one of them and what do you see? Nothing. Can't explain it. Can't figure it out. And your mind can't comprehend it. How God can ally Himself with humanity and be God and human at the same time. It's a divine mystery, but we need it. Oh, how we need it. So while we can't explain it, it is something we cannot fathom, but, but, but we can rejoice in its benefits. It is this divine human incarnation that made it possible for Jesus to be tempted as we are and yet to be without sin. Now, some may feel that having a divine Father gave Jesus a special advantage over sin, over us. But consider this. When we are born again, the Holy Spirit brings who? The living Christ into our lives, into our hearts. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Once we are born again, we can overcome sin just as Jesus did. How did He do this? He overcame by depending on His Father's power. So we can also overcome all temptations by depending on the divine power of Jesus. When on the cross... And while he was clothed with our fallen humanity, Christ was exposed to the justice of God. The justice of God did what it will always do when confronted with an imperfect, broken, fallen nature. It will withdraw from it and thereby destroy it. That is why Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's what killed Christ. The fallen nature of the race has beguiled us into sin. It has brought the curse of the law down on us. The entire human race is dying because God has withdrawn from us His tree of life. So the cursed fallen nature that we all have which is a result of sin, must be destroyed or exposed or hung on the tree, quote-unquote, from Deuteronomy, for all must see and understand that the wages of sin is death. As a human, Jesus was able to remove the curse by paying the wages of sin for all of us. Now listen to this. Since He created us, He's worth more than all of us put together. Does that make sense? So who's worth more, the Creator or the created? Who's worth more, the artist or the art? I know our world gets that mixed up. And He is the source of all moral worth. Come that, that moral worth is a big deal. That means that one of his that his one life can justly be exchanged for all of our lives. Even though our selfish nature is a temptation, in and of itself it does not sin. Why? Because sin requires the willful choice to transgress the law of God. John defines sin, and you know it well, the transgression of the law. The very word transgression denotes a choice of the will. Though tempted, Jesus' faith in His Father kept Him spotless from the stain of sin. By the way, that's why the grave could not hold Him. Peter argues that on the day of Pentecost. Death is the fate of sinners. 
and life is the destiny of the righteous. When Jesus became the curse for us, he gave birth to justifying grace, which is the result of his death on the cross. This justifying grace can take sinners like us and forgive, justify, cleanse, and transform us into saints. Isn't that good news? And this is how he does it. We call this substitution. So Jesus substitutes himself because he's able to do that. In our place, he takes the brunt of everything for us. You know, and I, I, again, I've talked to some Calvinists, and I'll say this kindly, and they say, well, Jesus only died for those who will be saved, those who are predestined to be saved. No. It's hard to believe. I mean, that would be enormously wonderful in and of itself if it were true. But he died for everybody. Everybody that is lost actually gives up what Jesus did for them. It's a tragedy. And that's why saving souls is so important. And that's why we need to be about, always to be about our Father's business. Okay, any questions on that? Did I lose you on that? I just wanted to be precise in making sure that we could understand that. Okay, Jesus became the curse for us Having become the curse for us, curses everyone who hangs on the tree. Verse 14, you're with me? Chapter 3. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So what is the blessing of Abraham? It's justification. If you believe in Christ, you're justified. Verse 15. Brethren, I speak in a manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet, if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. Now, this is important. He's laying the foundation here for something that's very, very important. If you buy a house and you get a mortgage on that house, you sign a ream of papers that thick. Am I right? You sign and you sign and you initial and you sign and you diligently try to read it fast, and I hope you didn't miss anything. And by the way, if you default on your mortgage payment, what takes over? Everything you signed. Now, you cannot at that point say, oh, yeah, I know I defaulted on it, but now I, I, too, I saw your papers, and I know I signed them, but I added a clause down here that said I could default for a year and it would be okay. And they're going to laugh at you. So you can't change that. You can't change that unless we both are willing to change it. When God made a covenant with Abraham, it's unchangeable. cannot change it. That is the basis on where Paul is going to go here. So God says to Abraham, in essence, you believe in my promise of the Messiah because you believe I will actually account to you my own righteousness. I will substitute my own righteousness for yours. Just basically went through that with Calvary's cross. But now, now listen to what happens as we, uh, as we get into this. Okay, verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Now I want to stop right there because we live in a world where people try to counterfeit uh, the Messiah. And and I want to say this, and you, you, you run into this anti-Trinitarian, and again, I'm not trying to be hard-ism, but there's only one only begotten Son. Now, if you go to the book of Job, it says, and the sons of God gathered together. Were they only begotten sons? No, 
If you go to the book of, I think it's Matthew, and it traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, and it says an Adam who was a son of, of God. But Adam was a created son. But Jesus, as the word only begotten will mean in the Greek, is unique and one of a kind. And you cannot explain it. It's a divine mystery. I cannot explain how Jesus was the only begotten of the Father, unique and one of a kind, and has always existed. But He cannot always exist in the future unless He's always existed in the past. Because the fact that His whole created world and created sons and daughters, we don't have that, and the only way we can exist in the future is based on His life, you understand? And uh, this is where the, uh, these anti-Trinitarians get themselves into a lot of trouble. They try to explain the inexplainable. And there's some things you just need to take by faith. And, and certainly uh, this is one of them. So Satan and his human agents are always trying to counterfeit the one and only Messiah. Using false messiahs, they manipulate people for their own selfish purposes. But the hope of humanity lies in only one seed of Abraham, only one seed of the woman. The hope of humanity lies only in this one Messiah. There cannot be another Messiah. Another Messiah cannot exist. And that's why Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, Before Abraham was, I am. Now let's look at verse 17. And this I say, that the law, which 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. That's the Abrahamic covenant. That it should make the promise of no effect. Now this is a powerful verse. Now I'm going to use a little illustration here. Because Paul is trying to help us get something in order. If you don't get this in order, you get really mixed up. Uh, I am not an artist, so just bear with me. I'm going to put an A here for Abraham. That represents the Abrahamic covenant. That's the covenant that God made. Cannot be changed. That's what Paul is saying. 430 years later came a thing, and I'm putting a big S here, called Sinai. This is where, where all the, the priest and the temple and all those kinds of things were given. And then about 1,400 years later, if my math is any good, we have the Messiah. I'll put the cross. Now you have to keep these in order so you don't get mixed up. The first thing that comes is the covenant made to Abraham, a covenant that cannot be changed. And then comes Sinai, and we'll talk about the role of Sinai. But Sinai cannot be a new covenant. Sinai does not change this. Follow me? Now the problem by the time that you get to, the, to Jesus, our Jewish friends' leadership, most of them had pretty well come to the place that this superseded this, and that Sinai was the new covenant. And therefore, they could only be justified by fulfilling everything that Sinai had said. They changed the system. Now, God, in essence, through Jesus, says to them, you can change what you want to, but I'm not buying it. I made a covenant back here, and I'm not changing. So, Jesus, so God refuses to recognize all the changes that were happening from here to here in the Jewish leadership. Am I making sense? 
So what you have by the time you get to Christ, and I say it kindly, is a great apostasy of the gospel that was given to Abraham. By the way, this is Satan's track. So what does he do after the establishment of the Christian church? Same thing. You get another great apostasy, the Dark Ages. And then you get the Reformation. And then we got one more apostasy coming. And that's it. In the midst of that now, that I'm not going to get into. All right. So, um, let, me just, let me just share a couple of things here. God doesn't give two different covenants of salvation. To give two different covenants would put them in direct competition with each other. Either we're saved by believing God like Abraham, to whom the promise was made, or we're saved by a method invented by Israel's apostasy, which the Apostle Paul calls the works of the law. As noted earlier, the Jews were, Judaizers were trying to mix and match. But the moment they added any condition or qualifier to the covenant promise besides faith, they changed or broke the covenant promise made to Abraham. On their part, they could make all the changes they wanted, but God would have no part of it, nor would He honor or abide by their changes. Now here's an important part about what was given to Israel at Mount Sinai. And chapter 4 is going to get into this, and this is why the heavenly sanctuary gets so important in all of this. We'll, we'll get into it. Here's the important part. Even though Sinai, with its sanctuary, laws, priests, festivals, and Ten Commandments, was holy, just, and good, it wasn't given to change the Abrahamic covenant. And since it was not changing anything, it was not in conflict or in competition with the promise. I'm going to stop right there. How many times do you have evangelicals, and I say it kindly, present the Ten Commandments as are the, are the covenant... Um, or even the uh, uh, ceremonial things, how, how often do they present these as being in conflict with grace? They're not. They never were. Because this was never given as a covenant. Sinai was not given as a plan of salvation. Sinai was given for something very important. So Sinai cannot be in competition with the, with the plan of salvation that you're saved by faith in Christ. It cannot be in competition to that. People paint it that way. Oh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not under the law. Really? No, no. I don't, that's why I don't keep that law. I, well, I, I keep part of it. But no, I don't need to keep it. I'm okay. No, you're not, because you missed what grace was all about to start with. I'll get into that. But Paul is not setting up two competitions here. These things are not at war with each other. The two systems are at war, but not Mount Sinai and everything that was given there. Are you still with me? Okay, don't be afraid to raise your hands and ask questions. I've got 32 seconds left. So I'm going to finish this. We've got something following us, so we've got, to, we've got to finish here. If we believe the promise, it will justify us by faith alone. So since the purpose of Sinai was not for our justification, it had to be given for another reason. For sure, it could not be another system of salvation nor could it add or subtract anything to the conditions of the covenant promise. And God, who gave both the covenant promise to Abraham and Sinai to Israel, would not use Sinai to break his own covenant promise with Abraham. Story continues tomorrow. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Father in heaven,
you are not inconsistent. And you're not at conflict, and neither is Scripture conflict with itself. But I pray you'll help us to understand these things and ever rejoice that we have a Savior that we can put our trust in, that we can love. And He not only changes the books in heaven, but He lives within our heart. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.